Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider what's it like to collaborate on a book? What are the pros and cons of collaborating? And what do different kinds of collaborations look like? Not that we have a personal stake in this, <laughs> in this topic that, or anything. <laughs> not that we're desperately trying to figure out what book or books we could collaborate on, for example. Exactly. <laughs> I'm really excited about this episode because we talked to two different teams of writers who are working on such radically different books in such different ways. So it was really interesting to have both of these interviews and be able to compare them. Absolutely. One is a memoir that a mother and daughter collaborated on together. The other is a love story novel that was written by two collaborators who had never met before they started working together. The first book we're going to talk about is the mother-daughter memoir. Lon Cow and her daughter Harlan wrote A Family in Six Tones together. It's a memoir about their relationship and family history. Lon was a refugee from Vietnam. She came here when she was 13. And the book is in part about her experiences as a refugee and how the trauma she survived has impacted her as a mother. At the same time, it's also about how those experiences have shaped Harlan's life. So really fascinating. Lon is the author of the novels Monkey Bridge and The Lotus in the Storm. She's a professor of law at the Chapman University School of Law and has taught at Brooklyn Law School, Duke University School of Law, University of Michigan Law School, and William & Mary Law School. Harlan graduated from high school this past June, June 2020, and is now starting as a freshman at UCLA. We started the interview with me noting that I have two teenage daughters, and if I asked either one of them to write a joint memoir with me, I feel quite certain that they would say something like, ha, 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 no, <laughs> you know, like, absolutely not. So I asked Harlan if she had any qualms about writing the memoir and what made her decide to move forward. Here's what she said. Honestly, I'm not a very good risk assessor. So when I first got the offer, I was more just like, okay, yes, cool, I'll do it. And then when I was 16, 17, I started realizing as we had to bring in editors and we had to bring in the law team to see if like there's anything that's bad in there that could get you in trouble. So then it became real. Right. And during 15, 16, 17, your personality changes so much. So it's hard to tell which qualms I had came from just being at that age and being a girl or what came from the book. Right. How do you feel about it now? I look at the book and I honestly picture a lot of the arguments that I have with my mother over it. But, you know, <laughs> I think like those three years anyway, I would have fought with her without the book. So at least <laughs> having the book creates like a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a reason for it. And just we weren't just malicious toward one another. And I feel really happy about that. And a lot of stuff in the book we compromised over. There are a lot of allusions in there toward mental health and not even just war related, right? Because, I mean, obviously the root here is the war, but it's clear it could be about anything. It's good to talk about it. Writing a book is always complicated and challenging, and it 
seems like it could be especially complicated and challenging to write a memoir with another person. And then even more complicated and challenging to write a memoir with another person that is about your relationship with that other person. (laughs) So I'm wondering, um, how did you navigate that process? We did fight and we did fight over things that we normally would be fighting anyway. But now we're looking at different parts of our life. You know, different people have different perspectives and it's both their truths. It's not like one truth overrides another. So I had to really learn to let go because if she writes something that I don't agree with, it's nonetheless how she experienced it. So that makes it also complicated because I think as a mother, you tend to want to direct your kid, right? You're still the conductor. Oh, yes. And in this case, (laughs) you know, do they have to play their own tune? Yeah. Yeah. Which is always a challenging part of parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Harlan, do you have anything to add or did you have a different experience? Writing this book together, a lot of the arguments we would have would go off of the book and onto other stuff. Like it forces you to address things. I would say like, okay, well, I would, I want to put this in. She goes, well, that's not how it happened. And, and I was like, well, it is to me. And then she would say, well, I, that's too private. I don't want it in there. And because I'm like 16 and like defined and everything, I say, well, then maybe we shouldn't write a memoir. What's the point of writing a memoir and then saying this is our life and we're honest, but you don't want to be honest. The fact is that there's this cloud of stress over us. Like there's a deadline, right? Like within a week, we have to decide what we're going to put in. We both have to write it. I'm already a procrastinator. I had school. I had like so much stuff going on with friendships and relationships and just, you know, a relationship with myself, which is hard. And but the book definitely helped us discover each other, even though we have a lot of stuff unanswered. That's normal because we're such different people. Right. So in terms of the writing process, would you each write a segment and then exchange them? How did the nitty gritty of that process go? We knew what the book was going to at least look like because we did do a chapter by chapter outline for the publisher, even though we knew that we were not going to be held to it. So we had a general idea of what the other was going to write. And we did exchange it at one point at the beginning, but it didn't work out well at all because we fought over what was written. (laughs) It was like, no, no, this is not what happened. And then we decided, look, this was just creating too many explosions and too many detours. So we decided we're not going to exchange at all until like after it's done, just to keep the momentum. Because, you know, after each fight, the fights reverberate. So we decided we're just going to write and we're going to submit it to Wendy and Terizia, who are our two editors. And then, you know, when the feedback comes back from somebody who's not your kid or your mom, I think you read the feedback differently. We did not go off of each other's feedback. It didn't work. It was funny because there's this thing in Google Docs. You can type in a name and see exactly what sections have that name in it. And I would look for my name and I would try not to read the sections. Obviously, like, I would have to, but a lot of it was done by um, editors and lawyers and stuff. Honestly, I tried to keep my reading to a minimum, and then I'm just happy being surprised later when it's already out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I only read her chapters for spelling and grammatical stuff, nothing substantive, because if I tried to change anything, it became very turbulent and touchy. Neither one of us corrected each other's substance before we shipped it off. 
I cannot believe that they didn't read each other's stuff as they wrote them. Can you imagine being a mom, writing a memoir with your daughter and refraining from reading what she was writing about you? <laughs> I know. It must have taken enormous self-restraint and, and enormous trust, right? Exactly. Respect, right? Regardless of your family relationship, just the desire to want to see and be able to have input in what someone else is writing about you and your family, I think would be very powerful. Yeah. And and let's just underscore that this is a memoir, not just about their individual lives, but about their relationship. So they're writing about their relationship and not sharing that first draft. It might look like they're not actually collaborating, but in fact, they are. They wrote the outline for the book together. So they had the ground rules established together. And then they're collaborating by giving each other the space they need to do the work that they need to do. Right. And agreeing that whatever a third party said, they would abide by that feedback. So it is a collaboration by mediation in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. And you and I give each other space. I mean, for example, sometimes I'll say to you, I need five minutes to think about this. Or sometimes you've said to me, can you please be quiet while I read through this? (laughs) (laughs) And that works for us. Sorry. I'm just a little slower than you are. Sometimes you get to a conclusion faster and I need to ponder my way through a little bit. No, it's totally fine. It works for us. And I'm not, I beg to differ about who's faster. Wait, can I just say one more thing? Please. Which is, we didn't note that in addition to all of the dynamics we just mentioned that would make it hard not to read the pages, there were also issues involving mental health that they're very honest about for both of them. And I think that too would make you feel all the more vulnerable about what someone was writing. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing that really comes across in this book is the love they have for each other and the closeness they share. Yeah. So after we discussed how the process worked, we asked Lon whether the act of writing affected her understanding of her life story. And we also asked Harlan the same question. Here's what they said. When you write, you have to shape the writing as a narrative. You have to shape the prose And it alters how you remember something. Because if you're just stewing on your own, you're not necessarily consciously trying to take the other person's point of view into consideration. So in many ways, maybe you become more magnanimous about the experience. Mm. And Harlan, was that your experience as well as you wrote? Honestly, the book, it was therapeutic for me, but it wasn't like something that made me discover more stuff about my mother. It was Mm. more things that made me discover how I see her Mm -hmm. and how I see the world. I would have to really think about myself during that time because I didn't want to look back when I turned 19 in one year from now, which is not that long in the Mm -hmm. big scheme of things, and regret what I said and think, well, I see this totally different now. I'm just cringing at what I wrote. So Mm -hmm. I didn't only have to deal with my mom's going to read it, the the world's going to read it, it's about my life, but I also was very scared of changing my mind. Like writing about my mom to me was easy because we're so close and we spend so much time together. It was more about like writing about myself that was the hard part because I didn't want to hate it later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that particular challenge of writing about yourself during a time when you were changing so rapidly. 
that's really hard. Um, Both of you have talked about being more than oneself. Can you tell us more about whether having a sense of more than oneself affected you as a storyteller? Jung talked about the shadow selves, and he believes that all of us have shadow selves that we are not even aware of. And I think having multiple selves are very natural for refugees, too, because there are different identities that you show, right? Some parts of you are assimilated, some parts are not. I think being able to have those multiple shadow perspectives do help you as a writer because it helps your self-awareness and your observational skills. And I think being able to tap into all these different identities are very helpful as a writing skill. Um, I, I think from like the psychological standpoint, even if you don't have the obvious shadow self thing, I allude to having like a detachment from myself. That's more of a coping mechanism. It's almost like a Russian nesting doll, like, you know, those that like have layers inside of each other. And each one is like a different age. So you're all ages at once. If you're like 50, then you're also 49, then you're 26 too, because you don't just shed like one skin and suddenly just become more mature. And so I think when you write, especially a memoir like this, it was important to us to somehow create relatability. And I think by having that view of the world of lots of windows inside of oneself, it helps with that too. Mm -hmm. Lan, you talk in the book about the tension for refugees between needing to forget the past in order to move forward and the importance of remembering the past. Writing a memoir is obviously a process of immersing yourself in and preserving your memories. So why do you think you chose that route? And can you say a little bit more about the role of memory for refugees? My relationship with memory is both organic and intrinsic and then strategic. So strategic really does require, if not forgetting the memory, even though that's what my father advised me to do, just forget about it and move forward and live in the present, which is a very Buddhist way of living life. I felt like I was parachuted into this country and had to develop a strategy very fast. For that strategic reason, I think it was good to set aside the memory if it interfered with functionality. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, from an organic standpoint, that memory is there because no matter how you sidestep it, it will speak mm. because it does have its own voice and you cannot suppress that voice. So I think memory is both sidestepping it where appropriate and then uh, looking at it, scrutinizing it, absorbing it, assimilating it, digesting it where it is safe. Right, right. You've both written about the isolation that you've experienced and your efforts to contain your emotions. How does it feel to make your private selves public? The other day, actually like a week ago, my publicist, you know, there's this whole group chat and this email and they kept, you know, they're always hinting like Harlan needs to start promoting it on her Instagram. And honestly, I wanted to, um, and I did eventually, 
but I really stalled on that because my whole Instagram is the people I went to high school with and I don't say anything mm-hmm. nice about them <laughs> in <laughs> the book. And it was so funny because like this, a lot of them were swiping up like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to buy it right now. And they sent me like pictures of them ordering it and stuff like that. I'm thinking like, oh my God, like, well, there's nothing nice about you in there. So I'm sorry. But, um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, thank you. Like just buy it and don't read it. That'd be super cool. <laughs> Can we just talk about the bravery and the difficulty of writing a memoir in your teens while you are coming of age, writing about it as it's happening? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I can't even imagine. Think back to when you were a teenager and how much more you cared about what people think of you than you do now. I mean, it's not that I don't care what people think. Of course, I still do. But those emotions were so raw and powerful back then and knowing that you've put something out in the world and that other people will be reading it, that's really brave. And also the speed at which you're changing during those years. So Mm. Harlan makes it really clear that the person she became at the end of the writing process was not the person she was when she started out. And so how do you write for the person you are at 17 or 19 and still honor the person you were at 15. I mean, yeah. it's really challenging. It is. And what's remarkable is that she's so aware that she's going to change. And as she writes, she's keeping it in mind. And she has a really strong authorial voice. Mm-hmm. Well, the next book we want to talk about and the next pair of authors could not be more different <laughs> from Lon and Harlan. Mickey Daughtry and Rachel Lippincott had not met before they started collaborating. They live in different time zones on different coasts. Mickey wrote a screenplay with a different collaborator for a movie that became hugely successful. That movie was called Five Feet Apart. And then she and Rachel collaborated on the novelization for Five Feet Apart, which became a number one New York Times bestselling novel. It's amazing because it was a debut. It was the debut novel for both of them, and it became Incredible. a number one. <laughs> really <Incredible>. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now they've partnered on a new novel that's just come out called All This Time, which is also a YA romance and has been optioned as a film by Lionsgate. Mickey is a screenwriter and novelist who lives in L.A. Rachel lives in Pittsburgh and splits her time between writing and running a food truck with her partner. We didn't ask her what kind of food they sell. I regret that. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I asked Mickey and Rachel, what makes romance novels so irresistible? This is a genre that has a hugely dedicated fan base. People just can't get enough of them. And here is what Mickey said. Look, the whole world revolves around love, right? For many people it does. And and sometimes that is something that's missing in their lives. And sometimes it's something they have and they just want to see a different version of it. Every song, it really is about love. Every story in a way is about love. So it could be a hate, a revenge tale, but what is that about on the flip side? I think it's compelling because it it lets us live in a different body for a minute. Every story I tell has a strong element of wish fulfillment in it. I wish, I wish someone like Will loved me. Oh my God, what would it feel like for Will to say, I love you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have a screenwriting partner, Tobias, and it's something that we always say, which is anytime we start a story, we start with the love story. We have to know what the love story is because if there's not a love story, you are not compelled to give a 
flying s about these people. <laughs> there are love stories between brothers and sisters, not in the Game of Thrones way, but in the way <laughs> that you know you're out there and you're fighting for in the Frozen way. <laughs> That's exactly right. In the Frozen way, and in a romance, it is everything. It's the plot. It's the motivation. It's the so it's a singular focus on something super high stakes for everyone, which is finding exactly. love. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. We are very interested in what it's like to adapt a story into a different format. And so, Rachel, we're, we'd love to talk to you about taking the screenplay that Mickey and her writing partner had written for Five Feet Apart and turning it into a novel. So can you set the stage for us? Like, who decided? <laughs> who decided that I would be the... No, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely... A- really cool experience. How it came about was I uh, went to the University of Pittsburgh and I had a professor there for two different classes named Siobhan Vivian. She's a young adult author. She publishes with Simon & Schuster. And a couple months after I had graduated, she contacted me telling me that there was this opportunity at Simon & Schuster to take this screenplay and write the novelization of it. It was five feet apart. I read it. I absolutely fell in love with the story. I fell in love with Mickey and Tobias's writing. And I sent in a sample chapter. And I think it was one of those things where I really wanted it, but I was like, it is such a long shot. So it was a bit of a miracle when I got selected to do it. But yeah, it was definitely a really great experience. I it was so fast. Mickey, you can speak to me. Oh my God. My gosh. Like I I think I had to write the first draft in like 21 days or something. And I was just running on like no sleep. And I think just like raw panic because I wanted to, you know, prove myself, prove that I could do this. And I think also as we saw more of on the second book that we worked on together, we definitely understand each other pretty well between mediums. Yeah. She definitely reads my mind. We were on set and, you know, changes happen on set where they're like, oh my God, the scene isn't going to work. We don't have the blah, 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 blah. And suddenly I'm rewriting a scene and I'm texting Rachel. Hey, have you written this yet? Yeah. Have you done this? And she's like, yes or no or whatever. I'm like, well, stop. I'm sending new pages right now. <laughs> wow. So it was happening like in real time, she was adapting. I would literally write the pages, email them to her and she would be putting them in the book. And I forgot what my point was there. Oh, that you read my mind. So (laughs) what happened is we just got this really rhythm going. And I would say the real rhythm started halfway through this one, wouldn't you? Oh, I totally agree. We were doing the same thing. We thought, oh my God, this worked so well with the five feet apart. Let me just write the screenplay for all this time in the screenplay format because that I'm, I know what I'm doing and I'm in there. And, and so, but I wrote a much beefier version and I would have notes like, here's why, and he's feeling this and da, 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 da. So she took that and ran with it. I would say about halfway through, it was like, we got this. She was putting things in that I didn't say that I was like, oh my God, how did you know that? You know (laughs) what I mean? So Mm. it was perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. So you decided for all this time, even though you knew it would come out first as a novel, you wrote it as a screenplay and then converted it to a novel, but it's been optioned now for a film? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So did you deliberately not do what you normally do, which is, you know, write a screenplay and try to get it as a film? No, it was going to be a book. I think it was kind of Simon & Schuster who said, hey guys, since this worked so well with Five Feet Apart, what do you think about teaming up again? Because I gave them the idea for all this time and the synopsis and the first few chapters in the story, but we have name recognition and we worked really well together. And then when that happened, I was like, well, good. Let me just turn this out for you. And if we're going to do it, let's do it the way we know and the way that's easiest for us. 
I guess, why was it going to be a book? Why not do what you normally do, which is to go first to a studio? Because I want to be, I want to write books too. You get to say a lot more about what you're feeling and then you get to sell it as a movie if you're lucky. But I want to be a novelist. And with all this time, it's such a visual story that it, it kind of lent itself to a movie. But I wanted the book first. I wanted readers to be able to dive in and get to know the characters just like with Five Feet Apart and then see them. Because it wasn't guaranteed to be a movie. And honestly, it's a lot easier to sell a movie if it has underlying material. But if I had to choose whether it was going to be a book or a movie, I would choose book because I have more control over the storytelling process that way. Because once it goes to movie, unless I'm directing it in the studio head, (laughs) it is not going to be just my vision. It is really interesting to think about how much more control you must have in a book than in a screenplay. And also the depth that you can get into with a novel. I think novels have three or maybe four times as many words as screenplays. So think of what you say in all those words. Right. I always like looking at a screenplay along with a movie because it is stunning how much actors actually inject into the story. I usually think of that as a testament to the power of acting, but it is also, in this case, a testament to how much more goes into the storytelling for the writer in a book as opposed to a screenplay. Yeah. And then, of course, also in movies, you have the rest of the creative team, right? You have the director and the cinematographer. And how much are you getting just by the visuals of what you're looking at in addition to what the actors bring to the script? Yeah. I don't think we've even mentioned what, for me, is the most exciting part of the whole screenplay aspect of this interview. <laughs> Oh, Which yeah. is, why, why don't you share that, Julie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell listeners, guess what screenplay Mickey is working on now? It's the sequel to Dirty Dancing. It is really, really, really exciting. <laughs> Dirty Dancing played a huge part in my childhood. It's a movie my mother and my sister and I love to watch together. I just have really fond memories of it. So I, oh my I can't gosh, yes, because nobody puts baby in a corner, Julie. Nobody does. <laughs> Well, we asked Mickey about writing the screenplay for Dirty Dancing, and that led to a really interesting discussion about editorial input and how we all think we suck. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, Mickey has had this hugely successful film produced. She's writing screenplays with left, right, and center. They have a a number one New York Times bestselling novel out, and yet she's really upfront here that so often in the writing process, no matter how much experience we have, we just think we're terrible. We question (laughs) everything. Yes, absolutely. So here's what she said. In the writing process, I'm always just like such a nervous wreck. I'm like, they're going to hate this. This is stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But then it becomes a really beautiful movie. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) Any input is good input, even if it's bad input, because it makes you think about something that you've done that somehow they're missing it. And there's always, always, always improvement to be made. And it usually comes from outside yourself, because if I had thought of that, I would have put it in there. Or if I had seen this hole in my story, I would have seen this hole in my story. So I think outside voices are vital. As screenwriters, we're not shut out of the room. We don't, you know, but we do open it up to many more cooks and it becomes this yummy chili, hopefully. This is a theme that comes up 
in a number of episodes that we've been working on for Book Dreams, right? How important it can be to get input and how that can affect the story. We have an episode coming up that we're really excited about in which we interview Casey Sepp, who wrote a book called Furious Hours that tells the story of what Harper Lee did during the years after she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And it also talks about the editorial process for To Kill a Mockingbird and how important that process was for the making of that book. Writers are thought of as very solitary. And in fact, having the right input can be critical. It's essential. Something I used to tell my students was, you've never read a single book that hasn't had input from other people, that hasn't had an editor's eye on it that helped the writer make it a better book. So it is really critical. But at the same time, I'm reminded of that line from Free to Be You and Me, some kind of help is the kind of help we all can do without. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Because it can, getting the wrong kind of input or getting great input at the wrong moment can really derail you. So yeah. one of the things that is really clear to me from these two interviews is how important the right collaborator is and how important it is to have a trusted collaborator. Yeah. Not to get too spiritual or anything, but there's a concept in Judaism called tochacha. Do you know this? No. Yeah. It, it, so it's true not just when writing, but it's true in life. It has to do with giving criticism and that you can have the most important, vital piece of criticism and if you don't give it in the right way, you might as well not give it at all. It can be even worse. Yeah, it can be destructive. So I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.